Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. My name is Mike. Um, if you are here for the first time, raise your hand just for a second. Just see, welcome. Well, welcome. Enthusiastically waving. Yes. Yeah. Gentlemen, nice to see you. Now listen, there's a couple of things you've got to know. Number one. There's a welcome center out those doors. It's not really a center. It's two tables with black tablecloths put together, and we call that a center. All right? So, um, but at the welcome center, there's all sorts of information, and there's a card you can fill out. Let us know you're here, and uh, we will add you to our email list, because let me tell you, the highlight of our week is sending out a, a weekly email uh, to you, and believe me, you'll want it. Your spam filter will not know what to do with this thing. All right? It is a piece of Jesus just to get you through the week. Uh, don't know what that meant. Um, also, uh, you need to know that we, that this church really stands with the Ohio State football program. And, um, and I just want to, not that this matters, but I have a seven-year-old son uh, who doesn't even know it's possible to lose to Michigan. He just, in his seven years of life, we've never lost to Michigan Wolverines. Now, you may be sitting, well, I don't care about you and the Michigan Wolverines. Well, let me tell you this. Okay, God cares about your life, all right, so he cares about this too, and, and he has yet to answer my prayer that 49 states are just as good as number as 50, and we can give Michigan back to Canada. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? All right, um, we are, uh, we're in a series called uh, Consumed, uh, and uh, what we want to do the next, uh, last week and then the next couple of weeks is we want to spend a little time beating up on the American dream. We're big fans of America. We're big fans of initiative and hard work and all the things that are represented to us. But the American dream, the lie in the American dream is this, that, that um, ever-increasing levels of prosperity and health and security will lead automatically to ever-increasing levels of happiness and meaning and fulfillment. And we just stand against that and say, fundamentally, that is a mistaken view of life. The greatest goods in life are not consumable. They're not commodified. They're not bought and not sold. And I think we know this, but we are immersed in a world that says otherwise. We are immersed in a world that declares the day after Thanksgiving, the day after we're to be thankful for all that we have, to be the biggest shopping day of the year, or at least one of them, right? And then you have Small Business Saturday, and then you have Online Monday, and it is nothing but consume, consume, consume. And we do this all in the name of the baby Jesus. And we just want to say, well, maybe we're missing it a little bit. And so uh, last week, we wanted to go from entitlement to gratitude, right? And so we looked at this idea that there's this whole worldview that sees everything as a gift. I don't have a right to anything. Everything is a gift. So we go from entitlement to gratitude. This morning, we want to talk about the journey from self-sufficiency to dependence. And this is one of our least favorite conversations. Because self-sufficiency is the idea, of course, and this is the American dream. The American dream is that you would make much of yourself. The gospel is that you would make much of God. The American dream is that your resources and your talents and your strength can take you as far as you want to go. The gospel is in abandoning all that you can do on your own and exchanging your agenda for your life with God's agenda for your life will actually lead you to the life that's truly life. The best way to save your life is to lose it. And so we just want to remind ourselves a little bit of what God is like. So we're going to start this morning in the book of Judges. 
And we're going to start with a story that uh, is pretty well known if you were raised in Sunday school. Judges uh, chapter 6. And uh, there, there's good and bad when you're raised in Sunday school. Obviously the good is you're learning, learning a ton and, and um, you're meeting with the people of God. The bad is, though, you get these uh, stories told to you, and you kind of read the, the, as you mature, you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, as this collection of just cool Sunday school stories. Like, you know, David and Goliath is like me overcoming my personal giants, you know, and what are the rocks I have that can slay the giants in my life? And you go, no, that really wasn't the point of the story, actually. It was a lot bigger and deeper and wider than that. We're going to look at a story like that, where it's just very easy to Sunday schoolize it and make it a nice, cute story about what God used to do. It's not that kind of thing at all. It's something that God still does, and we don't like when he does it. So the book of Judges uh, is a very depressing book. The people of God are in the promised land. They disobey. God disciplines them in the, for, in the form of oppression from another country or famine. Um, to drive the people to repentance. The people are repenting when it gets bad enough, and God raises up a deliverer called a judge who will come and rescue them, in this case from a foreign enemy. And then the people, after they're rescued, get complacent, and they start (laughs) complaining again and disobeying again, and the cycle continues. It's a very depressing book. But there's a story of one particular judge that is instructive for us this morning. Uh, Judges chapter 6, this man's name is Gideon, God comes to him and says, hey, Gideon, you are going to deliver my people out of this oppression. And Gideon says in verse 15, but Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in the tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. In other words, God, you've not picked a real winner here to deliver your people, right? On the scale of the tribe of Manasseh, my clan is on the bottom, and then in my family, I'm on the bottom of the bottom, in other words. Like, I'm, I'm kind of like not the guy you would naturally think of to deliver the nation of Israel. And, and this is what God does. God loves choosing really unlikely people to do things for him. So ju- jump to chapter 7, verse 1. Early in the morning. Now, now Israel is being oppressed by, we're guessing, maybe 100,000 troops. We're estimating about 100,000 foreign uh, uh, foreign men of an army, foreign army of foreign men, something like that. A hundred thousand men from a foreign army. How about that? And and so Gideon shows up, and notice what God has this very interesting conversation early in the morning. Gideon and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. Uh, the camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands. Now, Gideon's got 32,000 dudes going up against 100,000. Does that feel like too many to you? Not so much. Notice what God says. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce to the people Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, and 10,000 were in denial and stayed behind. (laughs) So God chooses the lamest clan in the whole tribe, and then the lowest family of the lowest clan, and then the lowest dude in the lowest family in the lowest clan of this tribe. And then he says to him with 32,000 men, that's way too many. 
I don't want you to think that your own strength gave you victory. So ask everybody who's scared to leave, and 22,000 guys go. They've got 10,000 left. That seems like not a lot. But God says, verse 4, there are still too many men. Go down to the water, and I will sift them for you. Now, 9,700 of these guys get on their knees, and they put their face down to the water to drink. 300 of these men go down on one knee and cup water and drink it. And God says, ah, that's who I'm looking for. Let's go with 300, the nice round number 300. Now, we take a story like that and we say, oh, isn't that a cute Bible story about how God, you know? No, this is something far more dangerous and radical because this is something that God does all throughout the scripture and it's this. God will force people into circumstances where they are way over their head in order that he get all the credit for whatever happens next. So God looks at Gideon and he says, hey, I'm going to take the lamest dude and the lamest family of the lamest clan. I'm going to put you in charge of 32,000 men. But listen, you may win the battle and think that somehow you did it. So let's get rid of 22,000. Oh, and 10,000 still too many. So let's whittle it down to 300. Do you think Gideon and his army of 300 had any illusions about who was winning the battle for them? course not this is what god does he puts us into circumstances where we're in over our head and the only option we have is to cry for help he loves doing this we don't like when he does this at all right we like we like competence we like enoughness i like to know what i'm doing i like to be in control god has this opposing agenda to that where he absolutely loves People who have the audacity to take him up on his word, and often it's just the weakest who do. Those that are strong don't really trust him. But those that are weak, who have no other options, okay, I'll use you. And God does this all over the place. Go, if you would, to the book of Isaiah. Here's the reason he does it. Go to Isaiah chapter 42. God chooses the unlikely, puts them in situations where they have nothing. I don't, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to lead this. I don't know how to pull this off. If you don't show up, I'm dead. And God goes, exactly. Isn't that great? And we go, no, and that isn't so great, actually. Isaiah 42, verse 8. This is why God does this. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. In other words, I will not share the credit for doing something with you. Now, does that strike you as a little bit narcissistic? Have you ever wondered that about God? It's like, well, why can't he share a little bit of glory with me? I contribute, right? I get up and go to work every day. I mean, what's the big deal? Go if you went to Isaiah 48. There's this recurring theme in the Bible that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. God is talking about delivering Israel. And he says to them, Isaiah 48, verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. In other words, I'm not doing it for you. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory with another. In other words, God says, I'm going to choose unlikely people and call them to do unbelievable things 
put them in situations where they're in over their head completely so that I get the credit for whatever happens next. And you know, the reason he does this, I mean, first of all, it's because he deserves the credit. But secondly, he does it this way so that his people will begin to trust him. If you've ever been in a situation where you saw God move in a way that was unexplainable, you couldn't chalk it up to coincidence or luck or randomness, but it was like, no, I was in this desperate situation and God came through. What does that do to you? What does that do to you? It changes us. We trust him. Is it harder the next time? No, maybe he's a little easier the next time. We still resist it. But what I want you to see from the earliest pages of the Bible is that our God does this. He chooses unlikely people and he calls them into these just ridiculous circumstances just so he'll get the credit. And it's not because he's a narcissist. It's rather because he wants to actually build our faith in the process. Because I believe, you may disagree with this, but I believe most of our Christianity is designed to keep us from fully trusting in God. Oddly enough, a lot of my religiousness is based on trusting my religiousness and not trusting him. So I work out these formulas, and we've talked about these formulas, right? I pray for my kids, they turn out okay. I give money, he takes care of me. I love my formulas, right? Am I trusting God in those things? No, I'm trusting the formula. So on the one hand, we have us driven by a need for comfort, security, predictability and control. And then we have this untamed, ridiculous, wild God who delights in yanking unlikely people in over their heads and saying, just watch me do something. Do you see, maybe these are like two opposing value systems. Can you see that? Is anyone with me on this? I mean, this is what he does. Think about Abraham, all right? So Genesis 12, God comes to this man named Abram. And he says, okay, And there's no backstory to this. I'm just going to make you into a great nation. Awesome. The problem is, Abram's wife is barren and can't give birth to children. Of course, we're going to make you into a great nation by using your barren wife. And instead of just zapping her then, he waits decades until she's too old. Even if she physically could have kids, she's now too old to have them. And then he gives them a child. So he's 100, she's 90, and instead of changing diapers for each other, right, now they are changing diapers on this little kid. It's awful. But why does he do that? I mean, don't you think this is a little annoying? Okay, so I'm going to pick a king of Israel. David, you're the youngest in your family. Usually the oldest boy was picked. No, we're going to go with the youngest. And then what we'll do is we'll have you go up against Goliath. See, this is just one of those stories we so miss. Because what you learn from David and Goliath is that me, me plus God or God plus anybody equals win. <laughs> right? That's what you learn. I mean, this kid, the only reason David is highlighted here is because he had the audacity to believe that God valued his name enough to defeat this army representing a false god. And so that, I mean, that's why Jesus loves children so much. Children in the first century weren't highly valued. They were highly disposable. I mean, it was not the way we idealize kids today. 
And yet when Jesus was looking for examples about what faith looks like, he just pointed to kids all the time. Go, if you would, to 1 Corinthians. You see this. Am I the only one that doesn't like that God does this? Is there anybody else? I mean, I'm feeling just a little lonely this morning. I don't know. Tim said the front was the best. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if you guys would agree with that. You got to stay awake. There may be sweat. First Corinthians. All right, now I got to remember where it is. First Corinthians. Uh, what's my point? My point is. First oh, Corinthians. Ah, chapter one, right in front of me, verse twenty-six. Okay, so this is Paul writing to a church he founded. Listen to the resume of the people who are in the church. He says, verse 26, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called to Christ. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before him. Same rationale we get for the whole Gideon story. Hey, Gideon, I don't want you to think that you guys want it. I want you to know that I did. So I'm going to make you take 300 dudes to battle 100,000. Now, some of you, I know, are just thinking, oh, that's totally a fable. It's made up. It's whatever. That's fine until you see God do stuff like that today. And then you realize, oh, this is actual history. Like, this is what he's like. He loves to take unlikely people who know they're unlikely. They, Gideon knew he was the least. He was the last, right? He was the, he was the dude who was, not, who was most likely to fail in being a deliverer if they had that category in high school. <laughs> And, and yet God chooses him. Paul's the same way. Who is going to be the dude we're going to send to all the non-Jewish people in the world? We're going to send the dude who was the most Jewish dude ever. He was so Jewish, he was killing Christians. We're going to send that guy out to the non-Jewish world. Perfect. Who are we going to have write a book that is the greatest love poem ever written in literature, celebrating faithful monogamous love. Solomon, who was anything but faithful or monogamous. Right? Jesus shows up. He's going to... The, the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus was, was at, the, at the height of its power. Caesar Augustus was called the God King because he inaugurated peace on earth, so it was thought. He was worshipped as Savior. He was worshipped as Lord. The known world bowed to Caesar. And in this obscure part of his empire, in this obscure village, an obscure baby was born. And he recruits 12 followers, one of whom will betray him. So we're at 11 for 12. These are fishermen. These are peasants. They're uneducated, unschooled, and within 300 years, the Roman Empire will be toppled bloodlessly because of what happened in this obscure region over here. I mean, this is what God does. And he's not looking. I mean, James says it perfectly and hurtfully. 
God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. End of story. So for those of us that come to him boasting in our enoughness, and that underlies the American dream, right? My talents, my gifts, my work, and hallelujah for all those. We're not saying that's bad. But when that leads us to entitlement, and that leads us to thinking it's all up to us, you cut, run headlong into a Jesus who says, no, 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 no. No, you're supposed to die to yourself and trust me. Not live for yourself and trust you. And, and brothers and sisters, I mean, these are lessons. I mean, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says it beautifully. God puts this treasure of himself in earthen vessels, jars of clay, brittle hardware, so that everybody knows the treasure is from God and not from us. So God really delights in the weak. He delights in the broken. He delights in the lonely and the lost and the forgotten. Why? Because they know it's him. Why did the rich and the sufficient and the proud have such a hard time? Because they think it's them. So the work of Jesus has always flourished among the poor and the outcasts and the misfits. The rich and the powerful have always had the toughest time with it. Because what Jesus is asking is the abandonment of me and mine and enough and the embracing of weakness and brokenness. And who wants that? Like, there aren't better, like, the American dream stories we celebrate all are about self made men and women who believe in themselves and who trust in themselves. And we love it. And hallelujah. But the stories the Bible tells of the people used by God aren't the same stories. And would you agree? There's a part of this that we can do. Right? There's a part of this that we can cultivate, but then there's a part of us that God sometimes allows circumstances to dictate to us. Would you agree with that? My wife and I have three children. Child number one came along and was diagnosed as mildly autistic. Now, I didn't know what mildly meant. I just heard autistic, and all I knew of autism was Rain Man. And that's not a very pretty picture. I was devastated. I'd love to tell you I was just so full of faith I received it with thanksgiving, but instead I railed, was angry, disappointed, hurt, the perfect family. My wife and I both come from divorced families, and so we were committed to having a large, healthy family out of which just new generations could be born. And so we were just so hurt and so disappointed. God has since brought him off of that spectrum and done some amazing things, but we have a tenderness and just a worry when we started to think about child number two. We're like, okay. God gave us a girl, which is its own diagnosis. <laughs> it's true. Ladies, how is it that you are so socially aware so early? I mean, seriously, my little girl will look at me. She will ask for something. I will say no, and she will say, I will give you a kiss. <laughs> if you say yes. Okay, all right, make it a good one. I mean, it's ridiculous. She just knows, she's like honed in. Okay, but different story. All right, but for kid number two, it was a big deal. We were nervous. 
So we're debating now whether we have a number three. We wanted a big family. God said, hey, live by faith and not by fear. My wife has Down syndrome in her family. We didn't know it wasn't genetic at that time. So we thought, well, I mean, I don't know. And once you get over 35, you're, uh, the, the risk for having a child with Down syndrome increases 700%. I mean, there was all this stuff, and we were terrified of this. This Down syndrome was exactly the reason why we wouldn't have child number three. God says, live by faith and not by fear. All right. We we'll have child number three. Somebody who has a gift, some sort of prophetic gift or something, comes over us and says, hey, God told me to let you know, I know you're worried about him having Down syndrome. He won't. He's going to be fine. Awesome. Right? Thank you, Jesus. So imagine our surprise when three months before the, the little critter's born, what's, what do we learn he has? Down syndrome. And that, that at that stage in the game, 90% of people choose to abort. Right? Because they, they're, I mean, it's, it's like, you don't, you don't get diagnosed off that. This is just what you have and who you are now. And we were crushed. I, I, it was just like, really? Really? But you told us. I mean, what? I remember one time we were at Disneyland. And it was like special ed day at the park and Seth had just been born and we were still in the grieving process and the park was filled with adults with Down syndrome and we were devastated I mean we just we couldn't we just left now why I can't explain why it happened I don't have a I don't have a clue on that one I have guesses but you know what are those but what God's done is he has forced my wife and me, I, me, my wife and me, into a dependence we would never have had otherwise. Would you agree with that much? Because guess what we're doing all the time? <laughs> what do we do? You know, he's going to be two the day after Christmas. And the kids that are two, that are kind of the normally developing kids, are doing all this stuff. And Seth's about a year back. What do you do with that? Where do you go with that? And I granted, this isn't the worst thing that could happen in the world, but for us... And so I hear stuff like this, and it's very real, that God will allow us to be in situations where all you can do is say, I got nothing, help. And I think that is why Jesus, when he talked about the con what it looks like to step into his kingdom used children as the best example. Children have an intuitive, I know I don't know how to do anything. So can I have a juice box? Can I have a banana? Could, I have, could you fix some toast? Uh, do, do you know where my clothes are? Could you tie my shoes? Could you change my clothes? Could we go borrow? Can we do, I mean, it's ridiculously incessant, is it not, parents? But they have an intuitive awareness that we have what it is they need, and they're not shy in asking. We get that beat out of us. And for many of us, we live life now thinking, it's all up to me. And Jesus invites us to live different. Go, if you would, to the book of Luke. There are two postures that Jesus invites us into that my wife and I are learning in real time. These are postures of dependence, Luke chapter 11. 
So we start with the idea that the American dream is all about what you can do with you. And the gospel is all about what God can do with you. The gospel is about making much of him. The American dream is about making much of me. There's a self-sufficiency in American rugged individualism that we celebrate. And true, what we do have, we do have to use. I mean, there's no question, and we're not against that. But it flips a little bit when all of a sudden, even as a follower of Jesus, we're not trusting him for stuff, we're just trusting us. It's up to us. Jesus invites us to abandon the frenzied, stressful worry that consumes us. The constant scrambling for more. The constant having to secure for myself a future and the good life and to have it all figured out. Jesus invites us to a different kind of posture. When we told the church, I've told you this before, when we told the church um, uh, our little boy had Down syndrome, there, were, there was a couple that came up after, and they had a four-and-a-half-year-old little boy who had Down syndrome, and they just said, we're so happy for you. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not there yet. But I'm beginning to learn just a little bit about what they meant. Because I wouldn't have chosen this. Can we agree? I wouldn't have chosen this. How many of you would have chosen unemployment? How many of you would have chosen the things that have happened to you along the way? We wouldn't have made these choices. Now, some of us, our own idiocy kind of follows us along, you know, and and some of our wounds are self-inflicted, and so we'll own all of that. But how do we put together a God who delights in putting us over our, our head? And a God who does some of his best work when we're humble enough to cry out for help. How do, we, how do we put all that together with the fact that many of us are in situations where we're just like, I, I got nothing. And it doesn't feel good. It, it, like, this doesn't feel like this faith adventure. <laughs> right? It feels like you let me down. So Jesus teaches us how to pray. The problem is we're so familiar with this stuff, it loses its punch. Luke 11, verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said, hey, teach us to pray the way John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. And so Jesus says, okay, let me, let me give you an example. And what's the first word he uses? Father. Now, of all the ways to relay the creator God of the universe to us, this one was a bit of a surprise. And, and I, I know you, some of you have been abused by your dads, abandoned by your dads. Maybe you've got great relationship with your dad. You're in the distinct minority. God talks about himself all over as the father to the fatherless. So Jesus, of all the ways to relate to God, says when you pray, say, Father. Now, do you understand all the implications of that? I mean, it's relationship. I mean, no wonder Jesus would say, hey, when you enter the kingdom, be like a little child. Well, that makes total sense if, he's, if we relate to him as children and he's father. I mean, that just totally fits together. But to say that God is father is to say that I lack things and he has them. It's the, it's, Jesus says to know God as father is to understand. 
in the same way that our children have an implicit knowledge that I have the juice box and I have the capability to make popcorn and hot dogs and that I can supply whatever their needs are and they never say to me, hey, Dad, I know this is inconvenient right now. They never say those words, right? They just walk around knowing. All they have to do is ask. So Jesus says, come to God as Father. And then he tells this parable. And we don't have time to look at it because it deserves its own message. It's powerful. In essence, it's about being bold and persistent. And it's about annoying God into answering. And some people don't like that language, but that's exactly what the parable is. And then he says this. This is posture number one of dependence and childlike faith. Verse 9, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Do children ask? You bet. So as father, Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. And it's interesting, in Greek, It's continuous action. In other words, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And you'll find what you're looking for. Now, isn't that interesting? How many of you, when you hear this, you just go, that doesn't work that way. I've been asking a long time for something and it hasn't happened. I've been knocking on doors and they haven't been opening. I've been seeking and haven't finding. I mean, come on, really? But notice what Jesus is inviting us into. He's inviting us to abandon Abandon the idea that I have it all, I'm enough, I'm fine by myself. And to enter into the idea of God as Father by asking, seeking, knocking. There's a humility in that that we're not used to. Many of us have a view of God that actually keeps us from praying to him. Do you agree with that? We just think God's going to do whatever he's going to do. So why pray? I mean, this is what my wife says. Why pray? I think he's going to do whatever he's going to do anyway. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. It teaches just the reverse. It teaches that there are things, good things, that God won't do unless he's asked to do them. We're not comfortable with this. But from the very earliest pages of the Bible, God has been looking for cooperative participants in his work. He's never been looking for robots or puppets. So he creates Adam and Eve, and what's the first thing he says? Work. Take my garden somewhere. I've made this thing, you run with it. It wasn't just, hey, I'm going to take it however I want to do it, and you guys just, no. It was like, I give you the dignity of partnering with me. And that doesn't diminish his glory at all. It increases it, in fact. And then you have all these Old Testament examples of where people are crying out to God saying, okay, so like, what if there are 20 righteous people over here? Will you destroy the city if we can find 20? How about 10? How about five? Like they're haggling with the Almighty God. Or Moses saying, hey God, what would the Egyptians think if you just obliterate Israel? Or Hezekiah going, God, please deliver me. Look at what I've done. Give me 15 more years of life. And God going, sure. And then Jesus Do you think every single person in the Gospels would have been healed had they not asked to be healed? So Jesus had these pre-assigned marks that he was just finding. Oh, okay, this is my 1035 woman with the blood issue. Go ahead, touch my robe. (laughs) 
See, we have a view of God that says, now there are, there's this huge part of the universe that doesn't need prayer at all, right? The sun's going to come up tomorrow, right? I don't have to say, hey, God, could you, could you make sure gravity holds for the next couple of years? I mean, no, we don't have to do that. But James puts it most directly. You don't have because you don't ask. How many of you are uncomfortable with this? train of thought. I am. I was always taught to think, well, yeah, God's going to do what he's going to do. But the teachings of Jesus on prayer in the book of Luke, all right, so would you do me a favor? Would you read these? In the book of Luke, his teachings on prayer are actually designed to convince us that that view is false. Why else would he say pray and not give up? He tells a parable about praying and not giving up. And the example he uses is of a, a woman who annoys an unjust judge for justice. And then his point is, if you can annoy an unjust judge into getting what you want and what you need, how much easier will it be when you have a father who loves you? That's ridiculous. See, we've got to actually believe that asking and seeking and knocking makes a difference. But then, that's step one. Are you with me on step one? But then step two is the harder one. Step two is to believe he will answer with good. Notice what Jesus says right after this. Luke 11, verse 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Shall we take a poll? <laughs> right? And, and there's a double meaning in this, because it's not only that, that fish are a little healthier than snakes, but it's that a fish was, an un, was a clean animal, and a snake was an unclean animal. And so what Jesus is saying is, which of you dads would defile your children when they were just asking for food that was fit for them to eat? And the answer, of course, is no one. He says the same thing again. He says, or if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? The way scorpions curled up in the Middle East, I mean, you could mistake it for a leg, a leg an egg. Imagine the surprise. <laughs> Sure, here's an egg. No one's going to do that. So then Jesus says, If you then, though you were evil, thanks Jesus, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to you? And in Matthew, Matthew's version of this whole conversation, Matthew just has Jesus saying, And how much more will God give good gifts to anyone who asks? Now Luke specifies... One of the good gifts, the Holy Spirit. But do you see the train of thought? Train of thought is God loves putting us in over our head, forcing us to be dependent on him. We don't like dependence at all. So much of our Christianity is designed to keep us from being dependent. I'd rather trust my, formula, my formulas and my righteousness and whatever else. So when we find ourselves in dependence, where do, what, what does that mean and look like? Well, it looks a lot like childlike faith. Well, what's that mean? Well, ask, seek, knock. Don't stop. Keep asking and seeking and knocking. And then number two, trust that what you receive from him is good. And that is the hardest one. That's the hardest one. Do we really believe he's good? The reason self-sufficiency is so attractive to me is because I know my definition of good for me and his definition of good for me are two different definitions. 
right? My definition of good for me, security, family, health, enough money in the bank to have margin, to take vacations, to be retired, to have enough stuff, blah, 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 status and appreciation. And this is and a great marriage and obedient. I mean, this is my definition. And God isn't opposed to any of those things. But those things are all to be used for what he considers most good. Holiness, righteousness, obedience, dependence, worship. And the problem is, I think those things are a little bit better than those things. Right? I really do. Am I alone? So the economy goes south. And even in the church, we share the same amount of panic and fear. Which just shows the idol we've been swallowing the whole time. Regardless of what we're singing, the economy went south, we're in trouble. And so we walk around proclaiming one thing, and then, but not really believing it. So we have to be frenzied in our attempt to secure for ourselves good. And Jesus invites us to lay down the frenzy. And man, that is tough. There are some really ridiculous promises made in here that we don't believe. Can I do a jet tour of some of them? Just to show us things we don't really believe. And I'm at the top of this list. I mean, you start in the book of James, James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. You ever believe that? I kind of trust in what I think on my own. Or you go to 2 Peter. Don't turn there. I'm just going to jet through these. But just how ridiculous do these things sound? His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. You buy that one? In theory, I buy that one. Or you go to um, Ephesians. Ephesians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Do you feel like you have every spiritual blessing? I don't know that I do. Or 1 John. This one's pretty ridiculous. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of Him. I mean, you can just go on and on and on. Every spiritual blessing. He's already given you everything you need for life and godliness. All you have to do is ask according to his will and it's yours. Do we really believe he's good? So the journey starts by saying, hey, our world values self-sufficiency and enoughness. I can do it. It's on me. It's up to me. We move from there into the recognition that God 
has placed some of you right now in circumstances that are totally, you're in over your head completely. Now, sometimes these are wild and fun and crazy. You're on a missions trip and all of a sudden you didn't know you were preaching and all of a sudden you're preaching and God does something huge. And so there's, there are some of you here this morning that God is calling into just risk and adventure. And for you, you just need to, the more unlikely you feel, the more qualified you are. That's exactly how he works. So he places us in situations where he's going to get the credit. And it's not because he's a glory hog. It's because he wants to develop our faith. Great. Well, what's that look like? It looks like entering into the kingdom like a kid. But what are kids like? How are they? They ask, they seek, and they knock. They believe that I don't have anything. Father has everything. So they ask, they seek, they knock. And then they actually believe that what they'll receive is good. And that's the hard one. So I thought this morning what we'd do is we would pray for each other. Because I'm guessing I'm not alone. Bless you. I'm not alone in thinking and, and wondering if God's as good as he says he is. I can read these passages and they just seem far away from me. It's just like, okay. But the, imagine how you would live differently if you truly, to the depths of your core, believed that no matter what happened to you, you were safe in his kingdom. I mean, if you really believed that, we'd live differently. So um, this morning, we've done this before, but I, I want, if that's you, in a few moments, I'm going to ask you just to stand up right where you are. And I know that's totally, totally like a violation of passive church going. Um, but passive church going isn't real church going, and so we want to violate it all the time. Um, and, uh, and what we're going to do, if you stand up, what we're going to do is we're not going to embarrass you, interview you, try to fix you. Um, we're just going to have people who are in denial, who didn't stand up, gather around you and pray for you. And what they're going to do is they're just going to put a hand on your shoulder and they're just going to pray over you. And not, they're not going to pray to fix you. They're not going to pray that God would convict you of your sin or any of that stuff. They're just going to pray that God himself would show you he's good. Because I can't talk you into it. It's the word of God and the spirit of God that have to reveal this stuff. I just want to identify we struggle with it. And a life of dependence requires that we believe that he's good. Because there's no way we're going to abandon the sufficiency we have in us until that happens. All right? So if that's you, if you struggle with just the idea that he's good, uh, would you just stand up right where you are? And no one's going to look at you funny. I might, because I can't really see because of the lights. But if that's you, would you stand up? Thanks for being honest. Thanks for being honest. I know it's a courageous thing. That's why when we pray for you, we're not going to pray that God does something because he's already working. What we're going to pray instead is we're just going to bless him and ask him to keep working to reveal himself to you as somebody who's good and trustworthy. Would this row over here agree that that row is in denial? <laughs> over here. Except for a very courageous young lady and the gentleman in the back. We agree there's somebody else in here and you can't out-awkward me. Because <laughs> I practice awkward all the time. Anybody else? All we're going to do is come alongside of you and pray. Thank you.
And there is a humility in just even saying, that's why no one's going to look at you and judge you for this. This is where we live. All right, now, if you're new to our community, uh, feel free to opt out of this next bit. But um, if you love Jesus, have a pulse, and you've been around here for a week or two, <laughs> you, are here, you are here by commission to the Mariner's Mission Viejo prayer team. And uh, what you're going to do is you're going to gather around the people who are standing, and you're not going to ask them questions. You're not even going to talk to them. They're going to shut their eyes, and they're just going to receive and what you're going to do is you're going to pray over them. However God would lead you to pray, okay? Sound good? All right, so with the rest of you, pick somebody and gather around them right now. And there should be lots of people. Where do you go? How do we know who they are now that everyone else is standing up? It's a very fair question. You should have identified them earlier. Anyone, anyone uh, not have a ton of people around them? Okay. All right, pray ease. Don't worry about what you're feeling. Don't worry about what you're thinking. Just receive this, all right? And trust. God hears these prayers and answers. Those of you who are prayers, let me pray for you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would guide these prayers and that you, Jesus, would reveal the Father to us as Father and as good and as loving. God, would you release a boldness and courage and faith, Lord, to take you at your word in this stuff. It is so hard for us. Lord, we look at our lives and we look at the carnage that's self-inflicted or has just happened to us, and it's tough for us to believe that you stand over it all. And so, God, in humility, we just cry out to you this morning, asking and seeking and knocking. Holy Spirit of God, show yourself as good to us. Increase our faith and do in us what we can't do for ourselves, God. Would you reveal the Father to us, Jesus, in these moments, we pray. And so, brothers and sisters, now, would you just begin to pray over those you're gathered around? And in a few moments, we'll begin to sing together. But even if you're just in your seat, you can just sit and reflect on this. You can pray um, just for us as a community. We just want to take a few moments to let God guide these, these prayers. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariners Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.